Our father, the psalmist, told us in Psalm 37, he said, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. We are so grateful that you are a faithful God. We are so grateful that you are a consistent God. We thank you that um, you don't have mood swings like we do. We, we thank you that uh, your emotions don't fluctuate in regard to the events of life as ours do. Uh, you are God, we are not. Uh, you are the sovereign creator who has always been. We are on this earth a very, very short time. And then we pass away. And our great-grandchildren probably won't have a clue about us. That's okay. It gives us perspective. It reminds us that our days on the earth are few and that they are numbered and that they are governed by you. We go about our work. We go about our task. Sometimes we're excited about it. Sometimes we're not. but you remain the same. We are not always faithful, but you are. You are always there for us. Sometimes we wander. Sometimes we forget you. Sometimes we get taken with some idea or vision, and it takes our attention and our energy and then we find ourselves in some kind of trouble, and you say, call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Now, we've all done that. Thank you that because of your character, you are predictable. You're always there. You're always truthful. You're abounding in loving kindness. Now we got we we got guys coming in here from all kinds of places tonight. Not only are we coming from different geographical locations, we're coming from just different places in life. What we have in common is that we all need you. There is a lot of stuff clamoring for our attention. There are a lot of events in the world. There are a lot of things in this nation happening that have um, significant consequences. But tonight, help us to focus on you because you are sovereign over it all. You existed before the mountains were born. You have always been, and you will always be. You oversee the ages and the times, including our times, and you oversee our lives.
Now tonight, Lord, encourage us. Put strength in our hearts. Put hope in our hearts. As we study your truth. Truth always sets us free. That's what Jesus said. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We thank you for that. We count on it tonight as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's not what you call a good start. Stepping on your microphone, pulling it off your shirt. It's not how you want to start. But it's how I started. If you have your Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Why are we going to Hebrews chapter 11? Uh, because that's what we're going to study this time. That's why. Are we going to do the whole book of Hebrews? We're not, because if we did the whole book of Hebrews, we'd probably be in it for five years. Um... We're going to do Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a, a very practical chapter in the, in, in the book of Hebrews. It is a, a chapter about um, it is a chapter about the daily walk of a Christian man, the daily walk, the struggles, the pressures, the challenges. Um, Hebrews 11. I, I want to. What I want to do tonight is I want to kind of helicopter. I want to give an introduction to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. The Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is in Canton, Ohio. The Basketball Hall of Fame is in Springfield, Massachusetts. God's Hall of Fame is in Hebrews 11. Now, if you follow sports and you ever get into conversation with your friends, uh, sometimes it'll come up who's in the Hall of Fame and who isn't, and you get into these arguments, well, that guy should be in, or even, you know, like here in Dallas, the, the, the uh, Ring of Honor at Cowboy Stadium. Well, he ought to be in the Ring of Honor. Well, what's that guy doing in there? You know, there's all this debate. Who should be in, who's not in? Um, and the old school guys, we always have our, old, our favorites that the young guys have never heard of, you see. That's because young guys are dumb. <laughs> I just thought I'd share that with the young guys. And when you young guys are old, you'll think the young guys are dumb. But it's just that you're not familiar with them. They've always been great athletes, and there's always been great players. But uh, then they have the selection committees. Oh, I can't believe they overlooked that guy. And then they put that guy in, and, you know, okay. God has a Hall of Fame, and God has, oh, by the way, in God's Hall of Fame, which is Hebrews 11, the way that you get in to God's Hall of Fame is it's the guys who walk by faith, trusting in Christ. That's it. It's walking by faith. Turn me to Hebrews 11. He Hebrews 11, uh, here's the thing that strikes me about Hebrews 11, is, is quite frankly, 
the guys that are in it, the question is, why are they in it? Because they all, every one of them, had significant failure. Every one of them had significant shame. Every one of them messed up. Um, and the reason we know that is because these guys in Hebrews 11 and the women in Hebrews 11, we have biographical information on them in, in Old Testament scripture. So we know about their lives and we know about their stories and we're kind of shocked. Some of them are very famous. Others of them are somewhat obscure. But they all had significant failure and they all had significant shame. We, we, uh, we have stuff, every guy in this room, there is stuff in our lives we would be humiliated if anybody found out about. We all have stuff in our past that we want to keep in the past. We want to keep under wraps. We've all got our secrets. We've all got our shame. And we would be embarrassed and humiliated if someone found out. And in some cases, they have found out. And we're just ashamed. And we should be ashamed. So, too, the individuals in Hebrews chapter 11. It's interesting, though, because they went from shame to fame. And because, you see, God has a different criteria. Uh, several months ago, I was speaking at a men's conference in the Metroplex. There were a couple thousand guys there. And they had asked me to speak on sexual purity. And I had about 35 minutes. So I got up and I told the polar bear story. Now, some of you guys have heard me tell the polar bear story. Some of you haven't. I'm going to go ahead and tell the polar bear story. Because it fits as we go into Hebrews 11. So there's this young polar bear and he's out fishing with his dad one morning up in the, you know, around the North Pole. It's about 40 below zero. And they're just out fishing together, and there's not much happening. A lot of times when you fish, there's not much happening. And you're just kind of waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and there's not much action. And they're out there a couple hours, and uh, this little polar bear says, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah, what is it? He goes, Dad, am I 100% polar bear? He said, are you 100% polar bear? Of course you're 100% polar bear. Your mother's 100% polar bear. Her parents are 100% polar bear. Their parents, all the way up the line on your mother's side, 100% polar bear. And I'm 100% polar bear. My parents, my genealogy, 100%, you're 100% polar bear on both sides of the family. Absolutely, you're 100% polar bear. Why would you even ask? And the little guy looked around and he goes, you know, Dad, I'm freezing out here. <laughs> That's so bad, it's funny. Now, when I talked to those guys a couple of months ago, I told him the polar bear joke, and then I said this, I've been asked to speak to you on sexual purity. And as soon as I say sexual purity, there is a wave of guilt that floods this room. Is there not? Yes, there is. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that not true? There, there has never been sexual temptation like there is today. There's always been sexual temptation, but not the pervasiveness of it. My gosh, you can open an email you didn't even want, and, there's, and, and they'll trick you, and they'll deceive you. There, there is stuff that it, it's, it's, it's beyond belief. And I said to these guys, I was recently, I was at Target. In fact, a couple days before I spoke to those guys at that conference, I said, I was at Target. Mary texted me, hey, can you stop and get asparagus and mushrooms and peaches? Yeah, so I went into Target. 
and I got my asparagus, and I got uh, the mushrooms, and I'm there checking out the peaches. And I look up, because someone's moving towards me, and I look up, and here comes this gal, really nice looking, 30-something, tall, uh, long legs, short shorts, low-cut top. I'm trying to focus on the peaches. I'm not looking for trouble. I'm just trying to get peaches. Well, she had some peaches. You might want to snip that one out there, guys, for the ladies. Um, so I'm trying to look at the peaches, trying to get, get the peaches. And she's there on the other side of the aisle looking at bananas or something. I don't know what she's doing. I'm trying not to look at her. So I, I'm getting the peaches. I get, I get four or five peaches. I get them in the bag, and I purposely don't look up. I look this way, and I start to walk, and here comes her twin sister. <laughs> and I start looking around. They're everywhere. And they're everywhere. Isn't that interesting? Um, sexual temptation is everywhere. Sometimes we give in to the temptation. And we know we shouldn't. We do. And when... And here's the deal. Um, what, what happens is when we sin, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. Uh, you know the Lord. You're a Christian. But we struggle and sometimes we give in and we have these habitual sins and we're trying to fight them off and we're trying to grow. And, but we, we feel overwhelmed. And at times, here's what the enemy does. The enemy will come along and he will basically uh, start talking to you and say, you know, you're not even a Christian. It's sort of like the polar bear, wondering if he's 100% polar bear because he's cold. There are times we wonder if we're even saved because we deal with sin, not just sexual sin. We deal with all kinds of temptation. You see? And we're ashamed. We're ashamed of what we've done. We're ashamed of our behavior. We're ashamed that we're not making more progress. And the enemy uh, in Revelation is called the accuser of the brethren. So that's what he does. He accuses us. The fact of the matter is we're all sinners. We're saved by grace, but we're all sinners. And the fact of the matter is, is that even though Christ has come into our lives and regenerated us, regenerated us sin, still, sin still dwells within us and we still deal with sin. Now what we want to do is we want to learn and we want to discipline ourselves as the book of Romans tells us, we want to discipline ourselves to, uh, to start killing sin, to start mortifying sin, um, to fight off sin. Let me show you something in Romans. Turn with me over to Romans. Where are we going? I think we're going to Romans chapter 7. I'll tell you when we get there. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In, in Hebrews 11, what you've got is you've got certain people that had shame and mistakes and failure in their lives who knew the right thing to do and didn't always do the right thing, just as we don't do it. But they're in God's hall of fame. Now, how the heck can that be? 
Uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. We, I, I want to look at the beginning and then I want to look at the end of it and we'll kind of helicopter over it. it. It's about faith. It says in Hebrews 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about faith and what it is. Faith is in essence. Faith is believing God's word. It is believing what God has said, and it is acting upon what God has said. Um, one little girl in the hills of Tennessee, someone asked her in Sunday school, what is faith? She said, well, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, some translations say faith is actually the substance of things hoped for. Dr. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, said, he put it this way, now faith is the title deed of things hoped for. There is a title deed, so what's the title deed? As a believer in Christ, the scriptures are your title deed. There are certain, in, in, you got a title deed, there are covenants in there. There are certain provisions, there are promises. Uh, it is a legal document. God has made a covenant. He has made promises to his people. And God has never violated a promise. He has never broken a promise. Uh, faith is not believing, man, I hope that's true. It is living off the promises of God that God will come through for you when you need it at the proper time. Not when you think it should come through, but, but he is God and he knows what is best. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is how the men in the Old Testament lived. This is how men in the New Testament lived. This is how we live. Uh, look at, if you would, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said there are three things that comprise faith. There are three elements. Number one is knowledge. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. A lot of people, you know, so I'm a man of faith. What is that? Faith in what? You've got to have an object. The object of your faith is what makes or breaks you. Uh, Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when we talk about being people who are Christian people, who are people of faith, our, our, our hope, our faith is in the promises of God. It's in the word of God. But you've got to have knowledge. You've got you to have some knowledge about who it is that you've got your faith in. So you've got three elements to faith. You've got knowledge. Secondly, you have belief. You have belief. John 14, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come back and receive you unto myself. You see? God, there are certain claims in Scripture that God makes about himself. In fact, when you look at that Hebrews 11, verse 6 passage, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. 
Well, who? All right, that he is. He is what? Well, it all comes down to who he says he is. Our God, and see, this is what, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus chided them because he said, oh, you have little faith. You know what little faith is? Little faith is little thinking about the greatness of God. Who is God? Those who come to him must believe that he is. Well, who is he? Well, the Bible says that he is the self-existent God. He has always been. That's a statement God makes in Scripture. He is the self-existent God. Well, where did God come from? Well, he's always been. Yeah, I know, but where did he come from? He's always, you can't get your arms around that, can you? But he has always been and he always will be. He's not inside of time, he's outside of time. He created time. Uh, I think uh, Chuck said this one time, he said it years ago. He, he said, God invented time, men invented watches. God is not inside of time, God is outside of time. He has always been, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end. He had no beginning, he is the self-existent God. And you start getting your arms around that, and you start thinking about that a little bit. And that's the, the, those who come to him must believe that he is. And that's something you must believe that he is because he claims to be that. Uh, Jesus in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are certain cults that teach that Jesus isn't God. It violates John 1. What? Jesus is God. God in the flesh. Fully, completely God. Amazing. Jesus, Jesus was the creator. Go over to Colossians chapter 1. You see, we, we, you, you've got to have knowledge. Secondly, you've got to have belief. And then thirdly, Spurgeon said, you have to have trust. But it all comes down to the character of God and, and who he is. If you look at, um, if you go to Colossians, we find out about this God that we serve. And the, so I have faith in God. Fine. Well, well who is he? Who is this God that you have faith in? Uh, speaking of Jesus in verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus is not less than the Father. We have Father, we have Son, we have Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's kind of confusing. Yeah, it is, but it's what God teaches we have God, if you, if you do the classic diagram, is if you take a blackboard or you know, a piece of paper, and in the middle you put a circle and you put God. And then above it you write Father, then over here you write Son, over here you write Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have on top, you have Father, and then you could write the word, put a line down to God, the Father is God. Then you go over to Jesus. Jesus, and then once again, you'd put a line to God, and you'd write the word is. Jesus is God. Then you take Holy Spirit. Uh, you'd put a line to the word God. Holy, the Holy Spirit is God. Then you go Father and draw a line to the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But they are the same. You see? So I don't see. Well, I know, but it's what the scripture said. But that's who our God is. You see? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he, that doesn't mean he came into existence. That is, that is a term of supremacy, the chief of all existence. 
primogenitor, firstborn son of all men. He is the man of all men. He is the Lord of lords. It doesn't mean he came into existence. Verse 16, for by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him, all things were created. Do you realize Jesus did creation? So when Jesus came to the earth, was born of a virgin. See, that's pretty wild. That's, that's, that's kind of hard to believe. Not if he's God. It's not hard at all. Right? He created the woman who, who bore him. He created the earth, the stars that shone above him. He's God. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and visible, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue of the world. He's the glue of the universe. So he threw those planets into space, and they're not tethered to anything. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. That's our God. Now, why am I going to all this? Because the Christian life is walking by faith and trusting in him. But you got to know who he is. Because if he doesn't have that kind of power, then why would you trust him? Uh, God has all power. And here's something else about God. God has power over his power. We're men. We have power. Men are stronger than women. Unless you're married to a Russian woman shot putter who's on steroids. But generally speaking, men are stronger than women. And men can take advantage of that. Men who are immature, men who are unwise, men who cannot control their passions and their temper sometimes will use their power in a wrong way on women and children. A mature man learns to have power over his power. God has power over his power. Because of his character, because of his holiness. This is who our God is. Now, we're not like that, but he is. You look at Hebrews 11, and when you look at Hebrews 11, you see these men in this hall of fame, in this hall of faith. And you got some guys that are well known, and you have some guys that are not so well known. Uh, you've got um, you've got verse four. You've got Abel and his brother Cain. Verse five. You've got Enoch. Verse seven. You've got Noah. Everybody knows about Noah. Then you got Abraham in verse eight. Um, we have a lot of stuff on Abraham. Do you know that twice uh, there were situations where Abraham's wife Sarah was with him. And she was such an excessively beautiful woman that on two occasions, two different kings saw her and wanted her. And Abraham was such a wuss that he said, she's my sister and not my wife. He wouldn't even stand up for his own wife. And the Spirit of God intervened so that nothing happened. But you see, that was shameful. You ever done anything that you were ashamed of? You were kind of cowardly? Yeah, we all have. We all have. We've all done it. And here this guy, though, is in God's hall of faith. 
by the way, is that event in Abraham's life mentioned in the text? The answer is no. What's interesting, you look at all these different people throughout Hebrews 11. You get over to verse 22, you see Joseph. Uh, now, here's what's interesting about Joseph. In Joseph's account in Genesis, we really don't see great failure in Joseph's life. We really don't see uh, uh, much shame at all in Joseph's life because we, we just don't have that much information. Yet we know that Joseph was a sinner. We know that he had shame. We know that he failed. But see, he's sort of the exception in this Hebrews 11 text. You get into Moses, uh, who's in verse 23. Uh, we know about Moses' failures. Uh, he tried to pull off the exodus by himself at the age of 40, and then he had to run away from Pharaoh for 40 years, and then God spoke to him out of a burning bush that wasn't consumed, and God said, I want you to go back, and he put up all these reasons to God why he couldn't go back. Um, but that's not mentioned in the text. What's fascinating to me is in Hebrews 11, all of the men that, and women that are in here had personal sin, they had personal shame, they had personal failure, but none of their failures are mentioned in Hebrews 11. That's fascinating to me. I'm afraid to move, I'm afraid I'll lose my microphone, but I'm going to do it. Thomas Watson wrote this in the 1600s. Um, is it not true that we're very mindful of our sin? Yeah, it's true. Remember I was talking about the fact that as soon as you talk about sexual temptation, guys immediately feel guilty. Why? Because we've all been tempted and we've all given in. And the enemy will work us over and say, well, you're not even a believer. Yet we are believers. Before I read this quote from Watson, flip back to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 7. The Word of God is very honest. See if you can identify with what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. Paul says in verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Have you ever done that? Yep, join the club. Look at verse 18. For I, know, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Yeah. Hey, can I tell you something? If you struggle with that, that's a sign that you're a believer because unbelievers don't struggle. It doesn't bother them that they sin. It's not an issue. Because they have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God doesn't live in them. The guys that struggle with this are guys that have been saved. The, the Spirit of Christ is within them, and they've been forgiven. But you see, we're in the process, we're in the process of growing. I'll quote Spurgeon again. Spurgeon said this, Not all at once, but by degrees, shall we attain to holy knowledge. And our business is to persevere, to keep on keeping on, and learn little by little. There's not a big giant Christian microwave where you are immediately sanctified and you don't ever sin. Doesn't happen. In fact, if you're a Christian and you say you have no sin, 1 John 1, 8 says you're a liar and you've made God a liar. We all sin. 
We need not despair, though our progress may be slow. You ever feel like your progress is slow? Yeah, you do. We need not despair, though our progress may be slow, for we shall yet know. The Lord who has become our teacher will not give us up, however slow of understanding we may be, for it is not for his honor that any degree of human folly should baffle his skill. The Lord delights to make the simple wise. Our duty is to keep to our main topic and follow on to know the Lord himself. We just keep following Christ. Hey, these guys in Romans 11 weren't perfect. They could identify with Romans 7 with the struggle, and we have the struggle. If you're struggling, it doesn't mean you're not in the family. It means you're in the family. That's the point. We're conscious of our sin. This is what Thomas Watson wrote back in the 1600s. Wrong page. It's a good page, but it's the wrong page. Listen to this. God is infinite in knowledge. He cannot but be so. For he who gives being to things must need have a clear inspection of all things. Psalm 94, 9 says, He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He who makes a watch or engine knows all the workmanship in it. God that made the heart knows all the movements of the heart. He is full of eyes, like Ezekiel's wheels. Or as one scholar said, God is all eye. It ought to be so, for he is to be judge of all the world, according to Genesis 18.25. There are so many causes to be brought before him and so many persons to be tried that he must have a perfect knowledge or he could not do justice. An ordinary judge cannot proceed without a jury. The jury must search the cause and give in the verdict. But God can judge without a jury. He knows all things in and of himself and he needs no witnesses to inform him. A judge judges only matters of fact, but God judges the heart. He not only judges wicked actions, but wicked designs. He sees the treason of the heart and he punishes it. Now, I just thought I'd encourage you with that. But let me encourage you because you say, yeah, that's true. Oh, my gosh. Because, see, we're guilty. Yeah, we are guilty. But here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. And, and here's, guys, the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at 11. But the book of Hebrews basically is a book that helps us understand the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there was an old covenant with a lot of laws and a lot of regulations. But Jesus came and Jesus brought about a new covenant. And it is a significant covenant. I want to work our way through this here in the time that we have remaining. But as we go through Hebrews 11, God's Hall of Fame, just know this. The guys in God's Hall of Fame that are mentioned... They had sin, they had shame, they had great failure, just as you and I have those things in our lives. Why is it that God doesn't mention their sin and their failure and their shame? He, why is it not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Because of Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. Flip over there with me, would you please? You guys still with me? Are you? Psalm 
Psalm 103, beginning with verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now let me stop right there. We think God is quick to anger. God is not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. We miss up. We go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Watch this. Watch 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That verse explains why their failures and their sins and their shortcomings and their shame is not mentioned in Hebrews 11. See, we think when we screw up and when we mess up, we think God is going to, we think he's going to deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. We think when we mess up that we're, we're going to have his wrath. But see, it goes on and says, he doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. But see, we think he is, but he's not. Why not? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Watch this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We're just nothing. He knows that. Okay, where's uh, J.C. Ryle? Justin Taylor has an article called Inspect But Don't Introspect. You got to be something, in the, you got to be careful of something in the Christian life. When you go through the Christian life and you mess up and you fail and you fall short, here's what J.C. Ryle wrote 125 years ago. And I will say this to you guys I would say on average of 10 to 25 times a day, I will think of something that I have done. It'll just be a fleeting thought that'll fly across my mind of something I have done in my past. It might have occurred 15 years ago. It might have occurred when I was in high school. It might have occurred six weeks ago. Something will fly across my mind where I did something stupid. I made a wrong move. I made a wrong decision. I wish I could go back and undo it, but I can't. That happens to me 10, 20, 25, sometimes 30 times a day. It does. Listen to what Ryle says. Cultivate the habit of fixing your eyes more simply on Jesus Christ and try to know more of the fullness there is laid up in him for every one of his believing people. Do not always be pouring down over the imperfections of your own heart and dissecting your own besetting sins. Look up. Look up. Keep looking at Christ. Robert Murray McChain said this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Boy, that's good. I need to practice that. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at him. Which gets us back to Hebrews 11. Actually gets us to Hebrews 12. <laughs> this stuff's all connected. If you look at Hebrews 12, and, and know this, when this was originally written, there were no chapter divisions. That was put in later just so we could find the verses. So you got all of Hebrews 11, you know, you get all the way down to verse 40, and then you get to the next verse, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, now who, the, what's the great cloud of witnesses? All the people he just talked about in Hebrews 11 that lived in the Old Testament and are now with the Lord. Watch this. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses 
surrounding us, let us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. They already ran their race. We're running the race now. Now watch how we are to run the race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Watch this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Can I tell you what Hebrews is about? There, there are two key words. There are two concepts all the way through the book of Hebrews. The first one is better and the second one is the word superior. And I'll throw in the word greater. So there are three. Better, superior, and greater. All the way through the book of Hebrews. Jesus, Jesus is better, greater, and superior than the angels. Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is a, a superior sacrifice. He is a greater sacrifice than any of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Jesus is great. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And as we are walking through this life, this Christian life, with our victories and with our defeats and with our uh, happiness and with our boredom and with our, all the stuff we deal with, we fix our eyes on him. Because he never changes. We change. We're up and down. We're all over the map. He never changes. He's always there. He has made promises. And I live by my life trusting in him and in his promises that he will be faithful to me. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I read you that quote from Thomas Watson about God is all I. God sees everything. He sees all our sin. He sees all our shortcomings. He sees it all. He sees all our sin. He, sins, he sees our sins of commission, our sins of omission. What is that about? Well, there are some sins we commit because we go ahead and we're active and we do something we shouldn't do. But there are some sins that we omit. I should do something and I don't do it. I know it's right, but I don't do it. That's a sin of omission. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't know if you've read the news today. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. A lot, of, a lot of action going on in the world right now. Have you picked up on this? <laughs> kind of interesting. We got ambassadors being murdered. We've got uh, absolute uh, chaos in the Middle East. Um, I think I'll kind of stop right there. We, we got a lot of stuff going on. Then we got the economy. We, uh, maybe you've got a job. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe your retirement's gone. I don't, I don't know where you are. And uh, you've probably been thinking about this stuff. It's important, but it's not of first importance. Look at this. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Watch this. What I received. Now watch this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So let's go back to the eye of God. What did that guy say? He says, God is all I. Man, how does that make me feel? It makes me feel like a worm. It makes you feel like a worm. Because, uh, because I'm full of sin. I omission, commission. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't, I, I, you know, he, he knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He, he knows my, my, my secret sin. He, know, he sees it all. Yes, he does. He sees it all. But he didn't leave me to myself. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins 
that God saw every one of them. And I could do nothing about saving myself. I could not earn forgiveness. I could not earn redemption. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, watch this, not as a result of works. The American way is you, you, you live your life, you hope the good works outweigh the bad works at the end and there's the scale and man, you hope they tip right. No, they're not gonna tip right for any of us because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and rescued us. The sins of the whole world was put upon Christ. First importance would I receive that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Literally, bodily, he came out of the tomb. He was dead for three days. He came out of the, of the tomb. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Then he appeared to me, verse 8. Jesus died for our sins, paid for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. And catch this, all that God has ever seen in your life and in my life, judicially, that sin has to be paid for. Could I pay for it? No. So Jesus came, went to the cross, took my sin, took your sin upon him, and he paid for that sin in full. That's amazing. Is it not? That's the gospel. That's a first importance. This, all this stuff that's going on and wherever the heck in the Middle East it's going, it's, it's craziness that's going on. There's a spirit of the Antichrist, but let me tell you something. It's all part of his plan. And Jesus is one day coming back. And until he comes back, he's got his eye on the whole world. He's got a plan. It's all according right down to the minuscule detail He's not shocked by any of this. He ordained it. It's moving to a one world. Every democracy on the face of the earth will be extinguished. Just thought I'd encourage you. <laughs> and it's his plan. He's like, when's that going to happen? I don't know. You don't either. I know he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's got his eye on his people. It's the truth. You guys still with me? Are you? This is the greatest stuff in the world. Uh, go with me to Hebrews 9. Uh, Hebrews is a challenging book because it's a book that is explaining the transition from the Old Testament and all the sacrifices and all the laws to the coming of Christ and the new covenant which he established by the shedding of his blood. If you look at Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, and prior to Hebrews 9, 11, it's talking about, if you just scan the opening verses in 9, it's 9-1. Now, the, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, which is called the holy place. If you've ever read, read Leviticus at five in the morning, <laughs> it's a little hard to keep your attention. Why? 
because you weren't a, you're not a Levitical priest. But I'll tell you something. If you were a Levitical priest reading at 5 in the morning, you'd be wide awake. You know why? Because you had to make sacrifices to God and you wanted to live. And if you got it wrong, you'd be killed. Oh, yeah. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered strange fire. God killed them. When the high priest, Jewish tradition tells us, that when the high priest would go in to make uh, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, they'd tie a rope around his ankle. Because if he went in there and did it wrong and he was killed, well, nobody was volunteering to go in there and pull him out. Because <laughs> you were a dead man if you did that. So what do they do? They just grab that rope and haul that sucker out of there. Now, we don't have any record that that ever happened. So you had all these requirements in the Old Testament. Now watch this. Verse 11. But. But. The word but can change everything, and it does in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. And by the way, they do all these sacrifices. They're killing bulls. They're killing sheep. They're killing lambs. When Jesus showed up, and John the Baptist was baptizing. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They all knew what he was talking about because they all grew up in the Jewish sacrificial system. You know, how many, you know how many lambs were slain on the altars in the Old Testament? Do you know when they dedicated the, Solomon, uh, dedicated the temple under Solomon, they slew so many animals that the blood, they were almost knee high in blood. You could have taken a fire truck and a fire hose and, and, and all day long you'd be doing this and the storm drains would back up. That, that temple was on the Temple Mount and, and after that great day, all of the ground around it was blood red because of the blood that was shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no sacrifice for sin. Watch this. But when Christ appeared, 9-11 of Hebrews when he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Watch this. And not through the blood of goats and calves. Watch this. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. <laughs> the high priest would never get into the holy holies. He'd never go in with his hands empty. He'd always go in with a sacrifice. Jesus walked in with his hands empty. Do you know why? He was the sacrifice. He paid with his own blood. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, watch this, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. How do you get a clear conscience? You know how you get a clear conscience? By understanding what Christ did on the cross for you. That's how you get a clear Jesus paid it all. He paid for your sin. He paid for my sin. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 22. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Watch this. For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is why those guys who failed miserably are in Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. They were perfected by the Christ they trusted in who had not come yet. See, they looked forward to him. We look back to the cross. They looked ahead to the cross. We look back to the cross. But Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. By one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law on their heart and on their mind I will write them. Watch this. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That is staggering. See, this is why McChain said, for every look at you, every time you look at your heart, take 10 looks at Jesus. I'm screwed up. He's great. He died for me. He died in my place. The wrath of God, which should have come upon me for my sin, was placed on Jesus. So you get a clear conscience. Um, you say, well, Steve, what's this faith stuff? We're walking by faith. Yeah, we are. It all starts with faith in Christ and his sacrifice. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Go to your left. You'll find Galatians. If you're in Romans, go right. Say, why are you turning all these verses? Because this is called Bible study. That's why. We're not here to give political opinions. We're not here to take polls. We're here to see what God says in his word. Galatians 2, verse 22 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Watch this. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the Christian life. Do I sin? Yeah. As I go through life, do I sin? Yeah. What do I do when I sin? What do I do when I'm short with my wife and I'm kind of rude and I'm angry and I'm irritable? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. Mary and I had a conversation earlier this week. And uh, she said, we were talking with it. And she was very sweet about it. She was very kind. She said, you know, Steve, I've heard you talk a lot about, you talk a lot about fighting off fear. And I said, yeah. And I've heard you quote Martin Lloyd-Jones that faith is a refusal to panic. And you trust in the sovereignty of God. And you trust in his power and you trust in his greatness. I said, yeah. She said, I, I think you should do that with your irritability. I said, what the crud are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, and she said it just right at the right time and I didn't react. Because you know what? She was right. I had nothing to say. Because I'd pretty much been irritable pretty much all day. Except when I came over to the church office to get my mail. And I ran into three people in the hallway. 
And, and I was so nice. I was so loving. Oh, how you doing? Good to see you. I don't have time to talk to these people. I got to get home. But I was very nice and I was very kind. I get home, I'm a pain in the butt. Boy, she, she, she was very sweet, but she was very accurate. Proverbs says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. She, she, I mean, and she was right. And I've been asking the Lord to help me with that. Lord, you help me to fight off fear. Look at the life, uh, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When I get tired, I get irritable. So you know I've been in the last few days? I, I get up in the morning and say, Lord, would you help? I need you to help me today to be kind. To be kind. Would you help me with that? I've given myself permission at home not to be real kind. I need to knock that off. I need to get a, I need to get a handle on this. But I need you to help me because you know my weakness. If you can help me fight off fear, you can help me with this. This is the Christian life. Hey, guys, Jesus has done it for us. And now what we're doing is we're growing and we're maturing. Is there a big Christian microwave we get in and you punch in three minutes, instant patience? You get in the microwave, mm, hey. <laughs> Honey, I wrecked the car. Oh, that's okay. Here, let me give you a hug. You know, I, I can't believe I got a ticket on the way home. Oh, you're in double digits this month. <laughs> See, I need the Lord to help me. You need the Lord to help you. It's, there's no giant microwave. There's no instant maturity. There's no instant sanctification. It's a process. But I got, I got to finish with this. It, I, let me ask you something. Is this not kind of amazing what Jesus has done for us? Isn't that amazing? See, it's why John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. It's why Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called And Can It Be? And let me read the words to you. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all, it's immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach 
the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how you walk by faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel, which is of first importance. I would pray for those who may be here that have never trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins. You say in your word that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But 6.23 of Romans says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we would pray for those who have never responded to your offer of forgiveness in your son, that they might open their hearts and their minds and their wills to say, Lord, I trust you alone. I believe you died in my place, and I receive you into my life. And for those of us who have been walking with you for a while, encourage us with these words. Lord, we all have areas, and we're going to be talking about this in the coming weeks. We all have areas in our lives that we don't quite understand and we don't quite get. But this is where you have us walking by faith. We can't see the solution. We can't see the answer. But you have promised to make a way for us. And as we walk through these valleys and these uh, things that puzzle us and astonish us and we fight off the regrets of the past, you're growing us slowly but surely and maturing us into your men and you're using us. We're trusting you for that. And you will be there every moment for us. In you we live and move and breathe and have our existence. And you will take us all the way to our dying breath. And then we're promoted because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In his great name, which is above every name, we pray. Amen.